is a beautiful place, and we're thankful for the 14 years that the Harrisons have been in that country and their work, and we're honored to have Brett share with us from their work. Thank you. Go to that next slide. Uh, good morning. We are happy to be here. Christy and I moved in 2009 to Tanzania, and these are just a few of the photos uh, from that year. Um, you can see on the top left, that is our first house. We lived in it for 12 years in Gaeta, Tanzania, rural Tanzania, before we moved to Arusha, where we now live. And that was our house, I think, the day we must have signed the contract or something. And uh, on the bottom left, we are in language school, um, where we studied for 15 weeks Swahili language before we started doing ministry. And then the rest of those photos are of uh, Christy and I and our favorite child at the time. Our favorite child at the time, the only one who was born at that point. Um, then since uh, over the last 14 years, two other children have been born. We've moved to Arusha, and we started a new chapter in our ministry. And I want to tell you a little bit about that. But, but first, I wanted to, to thank Stones River. So there's a number of things Stones River has done for us over these 14 years. One is you've been our oversight and accountability. The shepherds here have given us wisdom, have given us advice, have mentored me especially. And I want to thank specifically John, who's been over to visit several times, spent a lot of time with me in the field, and even traveling to Kenya and traveling to uh, agricultural conferences with me to learn more about what it is that I do and how it works. So I really appreciate that. Also, um, all of our financial uh, finances have been handled by Stones River for 14 years now. We want to thank Ryan and Bethany Kellum. Deborah's done a lot of work on that as well, and we couldn't have done it without them. They're writing the letters, uh, the tax contribution letter. I don't even know how those things work. They do such a good job that they've done that for us. And also just the church here has been a friendship and an encouragement to us for all of these years. We really appreciate that. Um, next slide. We're two and a half years into, um, we're two and a half years into a five-year transition to do redemptive business or business as mission. And the idea is that we want to transform communities through business. Um, that's new, and I want to talk a little bit about it today, but I'm really going to talk about one aspect. I'll get, that, get to that in just a little bit. But our strategy is to create a long-term sustainability in, in our kingdom work in Tanzania. So what we've done now is we've been reliant on donors um, for the entire 14 years we've been there, we want to create some long-term sustainability. We are on schedule to do that. So we've got a five-year transition. We're halfway there. December 2025 is the end of that transition, and we're now on schedule for me to be paying all of my salary um, via the business to continue doing mission work in Tanzania, because the company will still exist there, and anywhere else we happen to go for the rest of our lives. So essentially, we're making it possible over the next two and a half years, it's been a five-year transition total, um, we're making it possible for me to exist as a lifelong, as a lifelong missionary uh, on the profits and revenues of our company. And we're on schedule for that. So that's, that, is, uh, that is thanksgiving to God, that is thanksgiving to Stones River and many, other who have, many others who have contributed. Um, next slide. Many of you know that, that what I do is I organize world-class mountain bike races and trail running races. Next slide. What I've done a poor job of over the last two and a half years, I realize, is explaining how does this business 
that, that is, that is thrill-seeking and adventurous and so much fun for me, how does that actually impact the kingdom in Tanzania? So that's what I want to spend some time talking about today. Um, I'm going to focus on one idea. There are a lot of reasons that we've changed to business as mission in our strategy, and I would love to talk to you about all of those reasons. And catch me after church, I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in on those. But I want to talk about one very, very specific aspect today. And if you'll go to the next slide, I'm going to read this slide. This is from a friend of mine, but he says it better than I can. I have experienced a personal paradigm shift from a missionary visioned and driven work to a role of supporting and encouraging African leaders as partners and peers. Next slide. I no longer function as a traditional missionary. If I ever was a traditional missionary, I don't think I really was, but I was something, I was something that direction. And I no longer function that way. At this point, I'm functioning, as a, I'm functioning as a catalyst and an outside leader. And I want to explain what I mean by that. But first, I want to explain how traditional missions have worked, at least, at least in my experience. Traditionally, the missionary has moved to a culture, taken a leadership position, whether it is a formalized leadership position or an assumed leadership position, but taking a leadership position in the church in that country, let's say Tanzania, and that means they have power and they have control. They often have power and control through language or through finances is a big one, and sometimes through religion and the networks that we have within that religion. And, and so what happens then is, we plant churches, or, or maybe, maybe our focus is making disciples, but eventually churches are planted. And then when those churches reach maturity, whatever you decide is your definition of that, then we have to transition. We have to hand over all of that power and authority to the local leaders. And so that's a very smooth transition always. It always goes well. And, 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 and that's, how, that's how it works. Um, I do not have any leadership position in the church. Now, I've never really wanted to take a leadership position in the church, but it was assumed when I was a missionary that I was the leader. And now that I own a company and I'm working as a businessman, I'm no longer of any title in the church. I no longer have any position in the church. And so in the Tanzanian church, I have no position in any African church. Rather, I function as an outside leader, a resource, a mentor, and a catalyst. And what I mean by catalyst is I spark change by igniting action. And so I'm an outsider to the movement, but I spark change within the movement and I ignite action in the movement, not from a position of authority, but from a position of common mutuality. And so that's big for me. We'll look at Philippians. On the, yeah. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Paul makes it clear that Jesus is our model for um, incarnational ministry. And we learn how to do incarnational ministry here. Here's the thesis of my lesson, if I have a thesis. It's three sentences. Um, since 2009, in those photos where I looked very young, uh, I've gotten reading glasses, and I didn't bring them. So I'm going to try to read these as well as I can. They're in the car. Um, all right. These are the three sentences I want to share with you. 
Effective ministry cannot be accomplished from a position of power. Surrender of power is a prerequisite for common mutuality and Christ-likeness. It is by dying to self in humble service to others that redemption is made available for all. That's my takeaway for incarnational ministry. Uh, Let's go to the next slide. Incarnational ministry is to live among the people with whom and to whom you're ministering and to be one of them. So I don't exist as a leader in the Tanzanian church, but I exist as a, as a servant to the larger kingdom movement, which is led by my African brothers and sisters. So that's what I'm doing now. Over the last several years, I've pinpointed some, some, uh, un- some, some, I've pinpointed some ways in which I can assist the Tanzanian and the African church in ways that, that I'm uniquely qualified by my past experiences, by my training and education, by my talents and gift sets. I've pinpointed two very specific ways that I can help the church, and that's through agriculture and through sport. So I want to tell you a little bit about today how we do incarnational ministry through agriculture and sport. But first I want to share with you um, kind of the structure of, of what we're up to. Uh, go to that next slide. <clears throat> I'm not even going to talk about this slide. I just want you to have it. I showed it to you two years ago. I just want you to have this slide while I talk a little bit about <clears throat> the structure of what we're doing. So for 12 years, uh, we were in rural Tanzania doing primarily a rural work. And two and a half years ago, we moved to Arusha, which is a much larger, larger city. That move coincided with several things. One was our, our children needed a secondary school to attend. Uh, Our oldest, Baylor, who you saw photos of back when she was so cute and adorable and never had an attitude. (laughs) Baylor Baylor is 13 years old. Um, We needed a a secondary school. We have an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old. And and so that was part of our move to Arusha. Part of it was to actually scale a company that we started in 2012. Red Knot Racing Company, I began it in 2012 as a way to fund some shortages in our income. We were just short a little bit. We needed some extra money for demonstration farm and extra money for dental work. That was essentially what we needed. And, and it took care of those needs until 2018. That's the point where we started saying, let's try to scale the company by starting some races. That's also the point where we stopped making profits for a few years. Uh, but Red Knot Racing Company was founded back then. We decided we want to scale that company and we want to start a company within Tanzania. So the way we're structured now, we're in Arusha, Tanzania. First of all, I need to, I need to catch you up on Christy. I've been saying I am doing uh, catalytic ministry. I'm an outside leader within the church. Um, Christy has taken a position at Braeburn International School. She's teaching English in the secondary school, and that is how our kids are able to go to school at an otherwise very expensive private school. And so Christy's teaching. She is doing ministry there in that way, um, but separate than this business as ministry idea. Uh, I, I like the idea of business as mission, and I like saying the word we a lot, and Christy sometimes afterwards asked me, why do you say we? It's you doing business as mission. I'm, I'm a teacher, and that's what I'm doing. So uh, Christy's teaching. Um, we have uh, Red Knot Racing Company is an LLC in the United States. And then we also have Red Knot Development is a 501c3 in the United States. And that is so we can receive uh, donations to the development group and grants. And we do have a few grants that I'll tell you about. Um, and then we can also receive profits through that company. 
and 2% of all of our revenue in Red Knot Racing Company goes to Red Knot Development. Red Knot Racing Company and Red Knot Development in the U.S. both help to fund Red Knot Tanzania in Tanzania. It's a company limited by shares. And so that's the most recent thing I've been doing. I've been building platforms and systems for the last two and a half years so that we can, so that we can enhance the kingdom movement in Tanzania through business. So Red Knot Tanzania does agriculture. We do agriculture consulting. We organize events and races for Red Knot Racing Company, and we even organize one other event for another company in UK. And that's been our most profitable event so far because they have to pay me whether the race makes any money or not. Um, so right now we have four. Our, our biggest revenue generation long-term will definitely be the races. We're at a point now where they're, it looks like they're really about to take off. 2024 should be a b big year for us. Every January we have Killy Trails Festival. That is a big family atmosphere festival. There's 12 races over the weekend from a, from a one-mile fun run for kids up to a six-hour ultra marathon for uh, kids or adults. And, um, and then we've got uh, uh, cycling races from a 6K, four-lap, uh, six-kilometer. It's about four miles. Uh, four-lap mountain bike course for children and some adults, all the way up to, I think our longest race is 100 kilometers, so that's about 62 miles. And so we do all of those races over a weekend. We have food vendors, we build a big village out on a farm. I just rent a farm. Uh, we've got access to probably 60 or 80, 100 acres there. Build a big village out there. We bring in generators, food vendors, uh, tents, everyone camps for the weekend. We have live music, just a big festival. Probably 35, 40% of everyone who attends is a child, and it's a big family atmosphere event. That's, that's what we've created to be locally accessible to the public. Um, there are orphanages who bring all of their children in to run. There are uh, safari companies who bring their staff. It's just, it's locally, it's accessible to everyone. Uh, that's Kelly Trails Festival. We had over 700 people there last year. We'll easily hit 1,000 in January 2024. Um, it is already, as far as we know, the largest sporting outdoors festival in East Africa. There is a larger uh, music festival in Zanzibar, a little bit different in that people stay in hotels. We're actually housing everyone on site. So it may be that we're the already the largest festival where we house everyone on site in all of East Africa. Um, that event's growing quickly. Every June we have a four-day mountain bike uh, race, which I think is about to become five days for 2024. It's a very difficult mountain bike race. Elite or expert category riders, for the most part, are participating in that race. We limit it to... 80, 80 riders next year, and it'll always be a smaller race. Um, that's an all-inclusive race we do every June, and that was the first race we ever started. That's the one that's gotten the most international attention, but makes the least money. Um, Kilimanjaro Trail Run is a weekend of half marathon, full marathon, and two ultra marathons on Mount Kilimanjaro, this beautiful mountain that, that, that John mentioned. And that's a very tough weekend, but because of some easy time cutoffs on our half marathon, we have a lot of people who come and spend six hours hiking a half marathon on Mount Kilimanjaro as an experience with their friends. And that also allows some of the ultra runners to bring their spouses or their children and everyone gets to participate for a weekend. So those are our three races that we own. I also operate, uh, organize a race of 250 kilometer running race. Um, I don't know what that is. That's about a 150 miles over five days. And that's a stage race, too many miles. Uh, it's about 150 miles over five days. And I organized that for a group out of UK called Ultra X. 
And so those are the races we've got. We also make money through agriculture consulting. I have a business partner named Crispin Mirambo who has worked in agriculture development in Tanzania for twice as long as I have. And he is a Tanzanian citizen. And he does a lot of our consulting for, uh, on behalf of our company. He does a lot of our consulting. On our demonstration farm that we've started uh, with Red Knot Tanzania in, in Arusha town. So just, just down from where, uh, where we live, we bought enough land that we have um, a demonstration farm there on site, offices, and a classroom space. And on that farm, it's a permaculture farm. We have um, <coughs> conservation agriculture, which is what I've been doing the most for the, for the 12 years prior to moving to Arusha. We have food forests, uh, fruit, you know, fruit orchards. We have stingless bees. I'm now, I'm now very allergic to regular honeybees, which I, I didn't, well, I, I wasn't for years, and I, last year I became um, very allergic. So we have stingless bees. We farm tilapia, we farm catfish. Chickens, we are, those chickens are for egg production. We're about to have dairy goats and rabbits. So that's all the livestock. Crispin is our livestock expert. I'm our soils and field crops expert. And then we've hired Nashesha Roberg, um, who handles most of the farm management, but she's our expert in kitchen gardens, vegetable gardens, and organic production. And so we have three of us that come together to run that farm. You'll see a video in just a minute about how that farm You'll see a video that at least highlights some of what the farm does. So that's used for um, trainings on site. We intend to use it even more in the future for, especially for trainings for vocational missionaries and evangelists who need an access and a credibility mini uh, ministry where they're going. Um, so that's kind of how we're structured. Now I want to talk specifically about agriculture and sport and how we impact the kingdom through those. Because until now, people have seen this, and it's largely my fault for explaining it this way, as only a funding mechanism, and why is our missionary just starting a business? And they don't see the connection. So I'm going to show you a video first about agriculture. And this video wasn't created for us, so I'll need to tell you the rest of the story after you watch the video, but at least it gives us a, a good starting point for what we do.
So I want to tell you a little bit more about that story. The Datoga people are pastoralists traditionally, and very similar to the Maasai, if you've heard of the Maasai. Um, however, the Datoga are a much smaller group. Uh, they are more oppressed than the Maasai. Um, not that the Maasai also don't have difficulties, but the, the Datoga have particularly had a bad, a bad go of it. In fact, they're called Datoga, means in their language, means of the cattle. And the Maasai people refuse to call them that because all of the cattle belong to them. So they're called Wamangati, which means the thieves, the ones who stole the cattle. Uh, and so the Datoga have been forced into a very small part of a uh, piece of land over time. Uh, they've been even taken advantage of by other Tanzanians in, in the towns and cities. Um, illiterate women have been signing over their uh, title deeds to people because they can't read the contracts. And they've really been oppressed and they've been taken advantage of. And now the Datoga are living on much smaller plots of land. They're not able to uh, take their cattle out to feed them and they're and they're being forced to farm. They know very little about farming. Okay, several years ago, 2016 to be exact, there were several Kenyan churches which were uh, started uh, in the 80s by some Church of Christ missionaries, many of whom I think came out of Harding University. And those churches got together and they said, what we'd like to do is we'd like to start sending missionaries out ourselves. We've been We've been benefiting from missionaries coming to us for 20, 30, 40 years, and now it's our time to do something, something similar. So they chose Zephania and Gladys. Zephania is a retired school teacher, and Zephania and Gladys were chosen, uh, or at least they were asked, would you be willing to do this? They chose a people group, which was the Datoga people, and the Datoga people are distant cousins of the Kalenjin people, and that's, and that's where these churches are among the Kalenjin. And so, so Zephanie and Gladys were sent to the Datoga land um, in order to do missions, in order to, to do evangelism. Not only are the Datoga um, suffering from poverty and uh, uh, food scarcity, lack of food, food insecurity, but also there are no churches in the villages. Only, you can only find those in town centers. You don't find them among the Datoga in their villages. And so Zephanie and Gladys moved, and they found evangelism very difficult and very hard, uh, very slow, which is to be expected among a more traditional people group. Um, they did some literacy programs because they saw a need for that, and that was helpful in gaining them some access and some credibility, but they continued to get questions. Can you help us farm? We just want to learn how to plant maize. Zephaniah was a school teacher. He'd not been a farmer. And through, uh, through a number of people, eventually, they asked me, late 2018, can you come and teach a seminar on planting maize? Just one weekend. Just come for one weekend and teach a seminar. I didn't want to go. I knew among a traditional group like this, one seminar is not going to do anything. No one's going to change the way they're doing things. They're accustomed to their lifestyle. They're, this is a waste of my time. Out of respect for Zephania and Gladys and Fielden and Janet Allison and Mark Berryman, who are some other missionaries involved in this movement, I said, okay, I'll, I'll come. I did it on my way to a bicycle race in Arusha. <laughs> Because this, this, this Datoga land is a, is a good 10 or 11 hour drive from where we lived in Gaeta. So late 2018, I went and did a seminar. And that's where the story picks up. Um, 
you, 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 you find out, oh, you know, one person calls and they said, we've, we've really benefited. And then another person calls. And eventually, I'm traveling back there. I'm bringing Crispin. We don't have enough money to fund the scaling of a project. Again, one of the reasons we wanted to start a business as mission. So I told Crispin, maybe through One World, the NGO that I was volunteering for at the time, maybe we can find some donors to help with this work. And so One World went out and found donors. And that's who this video is made by. Um, you've only seen the first part of the video because the rest of it's not finished yet, but it's for a group called Growing Hope Globally that is now funding the bulk of that project. Um, but what happened was Zephanie and Gladys were able to gain some extra credibility in their, in their area through agriculture improvements. And then they were able to gain access to new groups. Now, not resulting because of the agriculture trainings, but our work together has now resulted in over 240 baptisms over the last six years, seven, five years, and um, churches have been planted in a number, I know the number of I know the number of baptisms is from 14 villages. I don't think there are 14 churches. I don't know the number, but six, eight churches in that area have been planted. Zephanie and Gladys, Mark Berryman, some of those crew have been very involved in that. I have been a servant to the larger movement. I've never baptized a single person in Tanzania. That's not a role I've taken. But I'm a servant to the larger movement, and so that's just one example of how I've been able to use my talents to assist a kingdom movement that is led by Africans to reach Africans, and now we're finding success. Um, let's go to the next slide. slide. Uh, I want to tell you how it works with, with um, or how we, how we see it working, I guess, in, uh, in, in sports. So one of my regrets from our time in Gaeta is for 12 years I was working in rural villages, but I was primarily working with farmers over the age of 50. Now you saw some pictures earlier of several of those farmers. I wasn't working much with youth. That was just, that was our, our stage in, in ministry at the time. But one of our shifts, one of our ideas when we shifted to Arusha was let's invest more in urban youth and in youth in general. Because one of the things I'm certain of is that transformation, in the U.S. We, think to, we tend to think individualistically, and we think transformation happens in the life of an individual. Um, I believe, and I think if you look at scripture you'll find, transformation also often happens communally. And not only communally, but transformation happens over generations. And so if transformation is going to be communal and generational, then I need to be investing in the youth. And so what we're trying to do with Red Knot Tanzania is start a number of youth clubs. Those youth clubs will be, um, will be uh, coding clubs, um, gardening clubs, running clubs, cycling clubs. Uh, effectively, what we're trying to do is find a way to bring youth in and help them spiritually and physically, emotionally, intellectually. We want youth to grow up to be, to be what, what we feel youth what, what God feels youth should, should have in terms of abundant life. And so um, what we're doing now is we're writing a curriculum. Now, it's technically a rewrite of a curriculum, but we're writing a curriculum that is for youth running clubs. We have a grant from Micah 6-8 to rewrite that curriculum for them, but one of the stipulations was I will only take on the writing of this curriculum if I can pull out all of the life skills, Bible, and values training and insert it into other clubs, gardening clubs, coding clubs, cycling clubs. And they said, as long as you can write it in such a way that it's useful as a youth running club, we're okay with that. So, so we're, we're rewriting that curriculum now. It will begin field testing in September or October. 
and um, that's kind of where we are with that. Uh, just just one quick stat because it's interesting. Over over fifty percent of all Tanzanian citizens are under the age of eighteen years old, and it's a demographic that's overlooked. Um, next stage. We've, I mean, sorry, next, next, uh, yeah. So what we've, what we've specifically decided to do is focus now on running first because that's what this curriculum is for. So you can see just a, a page of a, of a rough draft of this curriculum. Um, already, uh, I've done a training with the Gaeta Diocese and the Mara Diocese of African Inland Church, Tanzania, to train their staff in how to run youth running clubs with the old version of this curriculum. And over the last two years, they've started 80 youth running clubs, impacting over 2,200 youth in just those two regions. Now, once we finish our curriculum, field test it starting September, next year that curriculum will roll out to six countries, to organizations and churches who already have 600 running clubs going, impacting over 17,000 youth in East Africa. And so that's the scale of what we're looking at. Long term, it's likely, it's likely that Red Knot Tanzania will become the training center, certification, standardization of all coaches' trainings, and child safeguarding policies that go into that program. So that's kind of what we're looking at with, with youth. So that's another example of how I can serve a larger Christian movement by making youth outreach, development, and education easily available for every church who wants to have a youth program. So that's what we're looking at doing. Um, next slide. Uh, this is just our last slide here. I don't think I left as much, as much time for questions as I thought, but I'll hang around afterwards if anyone wants to ask any questions. Happy to answer some questions. I know I haven't explained everything that we've, that we've done in great detail, but I hope it's a little more clear now how our business actually enhances the kingdom movement that is going on in Tanzania and why we desire to be outside leaders and catalysts. Really? Okay, well, let's, yeah, let's take some answers. I mean, some questions. Actually, I would love, if I can ask the questions and you guys give me the answers, that's a better fit for me. Uh, I'm always answering, <laughs> answering questions. Uh, I'll take some questions then. Yeah, if we've got, still got some time. Okay, I told you that I didn't want to go, and I only went out of respect for Zephanie and Gladys. Um, <laughs> so you didn't give your best? I gave my best. <laughs> I gave my best, and I prayed about it, and I should have trusted things. But uh, the, the Sukuma, where we lived before, Gata, in Gaeta, um, Sukuma land, is also a very traditional people group. And, and it took us three or four years of agricultural education within churches. Churches that already trusted me, where I already had credi credibility, I already had access. It took three years to see any real change. And I just assumed among the, the toga it would be even slower. Now, that was, that was poor logic on my part because the Sukuma transitioned from pastoralism to farming years before I got there. And the and the Datoga are transitioning right now. So, so they don't have any, any fixed cycle of farming. Um, a lot of African life comes from a worldview that, that things should, be, should, should take place in a cycle. And you want to do the same thing over and over again. Because if you do something different, it is assumed then, if a drought comes, everyone in the villages looks who did something different this year. Because that's why we have a drought. And so... so it's really difficult for the Sukuma people, so I thought it would be the same for the Toka. It wasn't true. Another interesting thing is Gidufana is one of the guys that was initially at that first training. He translated for me from Swahili into, uh, into Datog 
because I don't, I don't know their language. And so he's translating for me. And then um, just now, now One World, we've hired him uh, through One World to be an extension officer in that area. He comes to Arusha quite frequently for agricultural conferences. He comes to our farm for learning, for, uh, for learning days. And he was recently on the farm and in the office. And he asked something about, he was talking about the first time I came. And I said, you know, Gidefana, I've never told you this, but I want you to know, I only came that first trip out of respect for Zephaniah and Gladys and Fielden and Allison and these other, other people. I didn't think anything would happen. And he started laughing. And he said, but I want you to know, because he was one of the first adopters. He said, I want you to know, I only tried this method out of respect for you. <laughs> because, because they invited you, and they told us that they didn't pay you to come, and they didn't pay your travel expenses, and yet you drove 12 hours, and you spent a weekend among the Datoga people in a place that I knew you had to have been uncomfortable. And it's true, the Datoga villages are the least comfortable I've ever been in a village. And, 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 and he said, I knew that was difficult, and I knew you did it on your own money, and I couldn't figure out why, so only out of respect for that did I even try. And uh, wh- which is a testament to... I guess doing things out of respect for those that we should have respect for. I don't, I don't know. But yeah, so that's why I was surprised. Yes, sir. Um, from a technical perspective, they keep cattle. They had no idea how to use, their fertil- how to use manure. So, so what they were doing is they, were ta- they, knew that, they knew that manure could be a good fertilizer. So they were taking their manure and just scattering it all over the field. And it wasn't, it, wasn't able to, to, it wasn't able to restore that much soil at a time. So what I said is, okay, one, we're going to choose a smaller area of land and get a really good harvest. But two, we're going to, so we, we shifted to a conservation agriculture system where we, we dug planting basins. Specifically for them, if you want really technical, 90 by 60 centimeters uh, per basin. And each basin is about 45 centimeters long and a little bit narrower. We use the narrowest uh, hose we can find. And we put... We put uh, two big handfuls of manure in each hole, three seeds. And, and so they get, w- what essentially makes the difference is um, better plant spacing. Uh, the manure and the fertilizer is only in the places that we need it. And so we're using it more wisely. And then also we get some control of weeds just by not tilling up all the rest of that soil, some better microbial life as well. And then long-term, we also introduced um, nitrogen-fixing legumes that they can grow in the, in the every other season. And those legumes actually put more nitrogen, more biomass, organic matter in the soil, and also provide a cover to, 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 to uh, hold more water in the soil and prevent erosion. So all of those things put together. Um, you know, and also even just our method allows them to plant earlier because they don't have to wait for the rains to till up the entire field. Instead, they're just digging a few planting basins. They're hard workers. You, I think there may have been a photo of, them, of us digging some basins. So they're just digging these basins. That's, that's technically what we did, yeah. Other questions? I can't speak to the southern hemisphere, but I can speak to where we live. And um, yeah, right now we're close enough to the equator that generally speaking, we've had two rainy seasons a year and two dry seasons. You have a short, a short rain, a short dry, a long rain and a long dry. And right now our short rain and long rain are starting to kind of 
merge together without a dry season between and be shorter. So we're getting a lot less rainfall over the last 14 years. We've seen the shift, a lot less rainfall, um, and it's less dependable. It used to be that you could, you knew what day you needed to have the seed in the ground, and it's not like that anymore. Um, uh, you drive, I now, I now measure in drive times, not in, 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 in miles or kilometers, but if I drive about four to six hours south of Gata, where we were previously, they would tell me that when they were children, um, they had two rainy seasons as well, and they haven't had two rainy seasons now in 20 or 30 years. So it seems like that belt of two rainy seasons is of bimodal rainfall is shrinking. Um, experientially, anecdotally, that's what it seems like is happening. Other questions? Yes, sir. Ask it, ask it in a positive way. I want to... I want one. I, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I have a good theological answer. Um, my answer is, no matter how long I live in Tanzania, no matter how well I speak Swahili, I'm always an outsider. Like, I, I just, I can't, I can't become an insider. Um, there are a few groups where I am a less of an outsider than someone from the city. Now, in, on these farms, with the Datoga people, occasionally with the Sukuma people, I'll be in a village setting. And they'll get visitors from Wanza or from Arusha who are Tanzanians who have been to university and gotten a degree. And they make fun of them as being the outsiders more than me. And so it's true. They're also outsiders. But in those rural areas, I'm, I, experientially, I, I, just, like, I just don't think I'm ever going to be an insider. Um, and, and so that's why I'm using that language. Um, Tanzania as a whole, if you poll people, is about 50% Christian, 50% Muslim. Um, the closer you are to the coast, the more Muslim it is. So 95% probably on the coast. And then inland, um, where we are and where we were, you're probably 70% Christian. Um, but a lot more of the country, obviously, is that. In reality, uh, I would say a very small number of people are actually committed um, and living in the way that their religion would call them to, perhaps. Um, and so you have a lot of African worldview, uh, African traditional religion, what used to be called animism. Um, when we first went to language school, I remember one of our language teachers told us, listen, we know you're here to work with the church. We don't, hear, we don't care if you're here to work with Christians or Muslims or who you're here to work with. You need to know that the reality in this country is it's not, how, it's, not, it's not if someone will go to a witch doctor, it's how long will they wait before they go to a witch doctor. And that's been our experience, more or less. Um, but, but yeah, technically by name, most people will claim, very few people will say, I don't have a religion. And African traditional religion is nothing formalized for anyone to say they, they believe in. And so, yeah, it's 50% Muslim, 50% Christian. Would we have time for two more questions, maybe, if there are two? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, 
permission to speak openly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I have a list of, of like 30 good reasons to make the switch. Um, some of it is that I looked around rooms that I was in where I was teaching sustainability and I was, I was teaching groups of pastors who were not paid by their church to be pastors and I was teaching sustainability and, I was t- and yet I'm receiving funds and I'm the only one in the room receiving funds for what I'm doing. And so part of it was that. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it hypocrisy, but, but I, I felt like, look, I can model, I can model what I want to teach. Um, p- part of it was that it does, it does make me an, it does, it does take me out of that leadership position. No matter how much I tried in Gaeta as a missionary under the church, no matter how much I tried to, to be a resource and an advisor only, I was constantly asked, will you come and preside over the, you know, this group meeting with all of these churches? Or will you come and d- can you get us the baptism certificates and sign them? Or can you, it was always, I was always in that position and I wanted out of that position. I wanted to truly be not in, in church leadership. Um, also financially, I just think it makes more sense long term. It, it, we really look at it like we're in the point that, that two and a half years from now, I will be able to be paid out of our company for me to remain a missionary as long as, as I work. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm putting 30% of my time right now is races. Uh, 40% of my time is government compliance, audits, finances in Tanzania, which eventually I hope will not be my job. And then the other 30% of the time is, is missions and development. Most of that right now is developing platforms and systems, but that's going to be, but that's going to be different. And so I see a scenario where I'm, you know, I'm 50% time operating a business to give me the freedom to do missions and development paid on my own dollar. Also, we've already been able to scale our work. So We've not, I've not made enough money through the company to, to fund my full salary yet, but um, what we have done is we've already raised more money through donations that, you, you know, the race is just getting news out and we're having donations come in. So we, now that's not really business, but we've got donations coming in. We've already scaled some of the work we've done. There's been more money available for it over the last two years than previously um, just because of all of the access we're getting to people. Um, so those are some of the reasons, but I have a lot more. Um, yeah. Anything else? Yeah, thank you. Um, let's go to that last slide, and I will say a prayer. <coughs> Father God, we come to you, and we thank you for your son who came to earth, who surrendered power and lived uh, among us and as one of us. We pray that you um, will empower us to do the same, to live incarnationally, to have common mutuality with others, and to love people the way you love them. Uh, I thank you for Stones River Church. I thank you for this opportunity to share, and I pray that you will bless uh, this group of people as you, as you always have, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. <coughs>